Okay. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we are in Jesus Christ, and that because we are in him, we have access to the throne of grace, that we are given new life, that we are united to you, to one another by your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you bless the church and that you have grafted us in, that we might have the vitality of life that comes from you. Our Father, we pray that you'd bless the Sunday school hour, that you would continue to fill our hearts with joy as we uh, meditate on your word together. May we grow in grace as we uh, receive uh, the work that you do in us. We ask for your blessing on our kids and on us here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the second and third week of uh, All Things New, an introduction to Reformed eschatology. Uh, there, are handout, there were handouts over there. Richard has them. Uh, so if you don't yet have a handout, you can uh, get one from him. Uh, just a word of heads up on the hands out, handout. It's basically a, a future reference for you. Um, mostly because what we're going to be doing is looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith and some of what it says, and then there are a handful of uh, scripture references as scripture proofs for those things. Um, so there's not a lot to look at <laughs> during this class, just so you know, heads up on that. Um, but I did think it would be helpful for you to have those references. And also, as I you know, read through the Confession of Faith statements, you can see those there. <clears throat> uh, this is, as I mentioned, this is week two and three of this series. Uh, Russell was unavailable to, to teach Sunday school last week, as you probably know. Um, and so I will be covering the material that was going to be covered last week and this week's material, condensed. I won't be talking twice as fast. I'll just be saying half as many things. Um, but that's actually quite fitting because these two weeks uh, we have designed to be um, to be focused on the, the universal teaching of the church, right? We're going to be looking at – let me move this here. We're going to be uh, looking at – if you know the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 32 and 33, um, we're going to be looking at, as I put it, the end of the world as we know it, right? So we're going to be talking in the next 45 minutes about these topics, uh, the intermediate state, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, the eternal state for both the redeemed and the lost, right? That is, of course, a lot. Uh, I realize that, um, but the reason we were going to do this in two weeks, which still would be a lot, um, but the reason we're, we wanted to cover this is, of course, this is a class on what reformers thought and currently think current uh, uh, Reformation theologians believe about eschatology, and therefore we can't overlook these topics, of course, but here's why we can do it in one class. There isn't really a reformed distinctive uh, tack that was taken away from the ecumenical creeds. The reformers didn't shift away from what the church always taught about these particular things I listed. They said, amen, right? That's what the apostles taught us. So if you have been in the church for a while, if you've heard Christian teaching, I, I hope, I think a lot of what we're going to be saying, almost everything we'll be saying, will not, will not be news to you. This is, the, this is the Christian faith, what Christians have always believed. So 
Um, the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 32 and 33, essentially they're simple summaries of what Christians have historically believed about these subjects. Um, and I think that's especially important for those of us who, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the, the last class of this series two weeks ago, uh, coming from the background I came from, dispensationalism, uh, when I came into the Reformed faith and started learning about it, I wasn't sure what do Reformed people think about uh, orthodoxy? Where are the lines for orthodoxy? What's true, right? And so it's important to, to have this class, not only because it is a part of eschatology, but to be very clear. If you remember, uh, Machen, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who uh, was the founder of this particular denomination, uh, found himself in the middle of the modernist uh, fundamentalist controversy. There were a bunch of fundamentalists at this time that were called that. They were taking uh, these basic doctrines I just listed and adding to that dispensationalism. And Mason said, whoa, <laughs> whoa, I don't know about that. And then on the other side of this argument was, were liberals who were undermining the authority of Scripture. And Mason said, have you not read? <laughs> right? And so Machen was saying, hey, well, no, this is not what the church has taught, either of those two ways. So it is important to clarify um, that the reformers uh, embraced the ecumenical creeds. What are ec the ecumenical creeds? Name a few. Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. It's another one, that the third one that's commonly lumped in there with those three standards. The Athanasian Creed is a really common one as well. Um, and so there's a, there is a, a common misperception, maybe not so much in the Reformed world, uh, but there's a common misperception that pervades our culture um, that the Protestant Reformation, that they were revolutionaries, that, it that it's almost like they're thinking of it as the Protestant Revolution. But it wasn't the Protestant Revolution, right? It was the Protestant Reformation. Those two concepts are very different very different concepts. The reformers were not saying, all this stuff that's established is insufficient, so let's burn it all down and make something new. That is not what the reformers were doing. They were saying, what is current is corrupted and needs to be reformed according to the word of God. We need to go back to what the apostles were teaching because there's corruption in our midst. So they said, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, these are basic Christian teachings. So it's important to remember that, that the reformers were not burning it all down and starting from scratch. They were saying, we are part of the church. We are part of the body of Christ. And so these ecumenical creeds were embraced. What does the word ecumenical mean? Do you know? Ecumenical. It means worldwide or universal, right? So this is from the Greek word uh, oikomene, which is inhabited world. It's you know, like the, the Roman Empire is this oikomene, this inhabited world. So this is not distinctive regional confession. Like the Westminster Confession of Faith was established in a particular uh, context and region in these places at this time, these people. Now, th the truth that it's setting forth endures, and we can say, amen, that's what I believe the Bible teaches as well. I, all, I, I concur with that statement. But the ecumenical creeds are the most basic Christian teaching throughout all history. So whether you're Roman Catholic or Protestant or Eastern Orthodox or Coptic, 
right? These ecumenical creeds, these basic things that the subjects of conversation we're talking about here this morning are embraced by the church, universal. These are ecumenical creeds. And the reformers, again, said, amen. So uh, what I want to do is just read a, a few different, um, we are familiar, I think, with the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. Um, we say them often in our services. We confess them together. Um, but I wanted to read just the, um, the eschatological, remember that word? It's the big fancy word. It just means the, the uh, last things, right? These, these end times statements. These last things, um, the eschatological statements in the ecumenical creeds. They're very short. Just listen. You'll recognize them, of course. The Apostles' Creed said that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. We confess, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. The Nicene Creed, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The Athanasian Creed, he is seated at the Father's right hand. This is Christ, of course. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is what the church has always taught. This is basic apostolic Bible teaching, right? So um, what I want to say, what I want to do is look at the Westminster Confession and how it is a little bit expanding, but it's not changing at all. It's just kind of filling out this description of those things I just read. The Westminster Confession is, is um, uh, sort of stamping and saying amen too. Quick side note. Um, as, I, as we talk about some of these things, whether it's this class or the coming classes, um, if you were to, I, I'm intending to put together a, a list of resources, uh, books and articles and maybe you know, podcast episodes or something. Um, and I'll send that your way. Um, so as we're looking at, as we get into these different topics, if you wanted to go further and read more things, you know, I want to provide a little curated list. Here are two or three books that might be helpful. But if you wanted one book that would sort of cover sufficiently all of these topics for this whole series, um, but you don't want to read a massive, massive tome about it, you should buy this massive tome. <laughs> But it's a systematic theology book. What's a systematic theology book? What is systematic theology? How is it structured? What's going on in this book? Yeah, right. So it's Christian doctrines arranged according to topic or theme, right? So it's, I mean, it's kind of like an encyclopedia. That's a, maybe a little simplistic, but it's kind of like that. So if you said, what does this particular author understand the Bible to teach about the final judgment? You can just go to that section and read that topic. So therefore, this is actually quite brief. The section that we're talking about, all these series, um, this is by uh, Robert Lethem. Uh, Robert Lethem is an OP minister, um, exemplary scholar, excellent theologian. Um, Russell keeps uh, holding up his books, The Holy Trinity and others. Very, very good. This, uh, this systematic th theology came out by Crossway, I think last year. Um, excellent. Uh, if you were to get one systematic theology, just a place to go. If you just wanted to look up a quick doctrine, you know, what does a solid reformed guy say about this topic? I would highly, highly recommend picking up a copy of Robert Lethem's Systematic Theology. 
just a little uh, clarification if you wanted more information. So um, <clears throat> let's take a look at these things. Uh, we have, are there any questions about any of that before we proceed? Or comments? Maybe on the last class or any of this? Okay. So let's proceed here. The first uh, subject we'll be looking at is the intermediate state. What is the intermediate state? What's intermediate about it? Yeah, yes, after death, in, so our, our play, after we die, but before the final resurrection, there's this intermediate place, right? So that's, what, that's the subject of what we're talking about right now. So you'll see here Westminster Confession of Faith 32.1. Would someone volunteer to read what we have here? Okay. The bodies of men after death return to dust and seek corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heaven, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the, for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, where souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledged none. Thank you. So there are several things commented in there. Um, of course, this is expanded from the ecumenical creeds, but these are this is just expanding what the church has taught. So the, the bodies of men after death, of course, our bodies go into the grave. They return to dust, and they see corruption. But their souls, which don't die, and they don't sleep, right? What does that mean? What's that a reference to, a soul sleeping? You heard of soul sleep? Is it? Yep, Seventh-day Adventist, yep. So soul sleep means that there's, uh, I guess you'd say like a lack of consciousness, that the soul is just waiting quiet, right? That's not what scripture teaches, um, that our souls, with which neither die nor sleep, um, that they immediately return to God. The souls of the righteous are uh, being then made perfect in holiness. They're received into the highest heavens, which is, which is what? What is the highest heaven? It's the place where they behold the face of God. Where is that on a map? I don't know, right? That's not the point, of course, is that Heaven is the place where God dwells. That's where we behold his face. So then, at, in, there's, but it's intermediate, right? When we're in heaven beholding the face of God, that's not the end. It's intermediate, right? And they are waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. That's not the end of the story yet. Um, then, also it says, the souls of the wicked, those who are not Christ, those who are not uh, united to Christ as Sai preached. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. So did you catch that? Intermediate state. There were th these, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell. So uh, someone outside of Christ perishes today, tomorrow, immediately to a place of torment. 
right? That's what the scriptures teach, and that's what our confession uh, certifies, says, amen, right? So the wicked go to hell, the, the righteous go to heaven upon death, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. So both places, both situations, I should say, there is still an intermediate temporary aspect to what's going on. We're still awaiting this judgment, this where the resurrection of the just and the unjust happens. So besides these two places, uh, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. So let's look at a few scriptures. I have just the references there because otherwise you would have seven pages of uh, handout. So I'll just read a few of these just to remind you. Um, before I read a few of these, what, what kind of places would you think about for, let's say, the intermediate state for the righteous? What, what, what comments in Scripture? How does Scripture talk about when a believer dies? Then what immediately? Thief on the cross, Thief on the cross right? And that is uh, the first reference here, Luke 23. Uh, Jesus says to this thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Today, when you, when you close your eyes on this world today, you will be with me in paradise. Not at the final day, but today. What else? Any other? Yep. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. The rich man and Lazarus, right? So was that, uh, was that taking place after the final judgment? No, right? That was, that was currently going on. That's why he's saying, call out, you know, this story. Call out and tell my brothers not to come here, right? There's, this is an intermediate place of torment, right? Um, how about Paul? What was Paul's perspective on living life? So I had his hand up. Exactly. Yeah, right. And so this is a really fascinating tension that we start to begin to see, that he's saying, Christ uh, will be honored in my body. This is Philippians 1, the reference I had there. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me, which yet, uh, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He said it's really hard to choose between living for Christ or dying for Christ, right? But, uh, where did I, I just lost it. Um, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's the fruitful labor he's talking about. So is it good to live for Christ? Amen. It is so good. Is it better to depart, to be with him face to face, to behold his glory? Amen. It is, right? But even this, we're talking about the intermediate state. Even that is so good, and that's not even the end of the story, right? Because he still, as we were talking about, he still is awaiting the resurrection of his body. Paul says, being without my body is not ideal. I will be with Christ. I will be seeing him, and that is far better. And we're still awaiting this final consummation of all things. Um, 
Luke 16 was a reference to in Hades being in torment. Uh, this is uh, Lazarus and the rich man, that story um, about the rich man in torment. Uh, Jude 6 and 7. This is a really interesting comment. Listen to the description about the fallen angels. It says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Do you hear that? So there's immediate judgment happening, but there still is this, as it's put here, um, it's reserved until the judgment of the great day, right? So there's torment and awaiting the final judgment. Um, so you, there's also this interesting thing that's brought up in Jude, and there, you'll, if you know, people often say Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven, which I think is probably true. I don't know. I haven't counted it, but it seems about right. Um, in hell, it, we'll, we'll look at some of this, but um, the, this place of torment, notice here in this passage what I read, it's a place of gloomy darkness and eternal fire. How does that work together, right? And so I think it's important to understand that when, when Christ is talking, when we're talking about all these things, when we're talking about the, the intermediate state or the final state, and, we're, and we're, there's this description of what it is going to be like, when we, when we look at the descriptions of the new heavens, new earth, or of this utter darkness and gloom and blazing fire, in darkness. How does that work, right? When we're looking at these things, we're saying words cannot even express how bad or glorious this is, right? So these are ways to try to get us to, to come to grips with the, the immense reality that words, we don't even have words to express the totality of. Um, there's a fascinating passage in First uh, Peter 3 that you remember. Jesus preached to the spirits who are in prison, right? Um, that's a really fascinating uh, exegetical question to understand what is the nature of this preaching. But what I want to highlight is just the spirits are in prison. So it's gloom, darkness, fire, and prison. This is still uh, an intermediate state. I see you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. I think of that in Revelation 6 with the martyrs on the throne. Mm. Yeah. How long? It's this intermediate, right? They are, they're in glory, but they're saying, Lord, when? How long will it be until you? And they're conscious, exactly. They're not sleeping, right? Thank you, yeah. Yes. Believing in ghosts. Um, 
how does a Christian, like, how would you interact with a person who's talking about ghosts? Yeah, I mean, like, what what kind of credentials are you Mm -hmm. as a ghost? Yeah. Like, you're a leader on a platform about, you know, there's truth that exists. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so this is sort of a strategic, pragmatic question, meaning not obviously what is Scripture teaching, but you're saying, how would you approach that conversation? That's a good question. Um, how would I approach it? I mean, it would be, you'd have to know the person because I would want to begin to start talking about Scripture. I, I mean, how would you say anything without, well, this is what God has said, <laughs> right? So you obviously have to know this particular person and how open they are to launching right in or trying to say, well, you're operating from a paradigm that's assuming X, Y, and Z, right? Or even in a, in a purely Christian discussion, because I think that belief is kind of a loose thing. And sure. We're, we're often going, well, what do we really know? Is, yeah. Is that Satan? Mm-hmm. Is there a demon that we need to challenge? Sure. Sai has a question or a comment. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is if you're going to be really blunt, you would just say, well, this is what Scripture says, right? That's not tactically wise, right? So you really have to feel out these situations and say, okay, how can I lead this person to the truth? So uh, I would say making sure this person is involved in a Bible-believing church, inviting them, teaching them, studying the Bible with them would be the way that I would begin to do this instead of, you know, coming at them. Uh, But I think that's obvious. I think we all would say that. Um, But it is clear that Scripture doesn't have room for that sort of thing. So at that point, it's just how do you minister to somebody who is clearly either afraid or missing their daughter who they saw a butterfly and it makes them think of their daughter? If we obviously come up and say, hogwash, (laughs) it's going to crush this poor lady, right? So that's not how we want to respond, but we want to say, wow, you really need to be enriched with Scripture and to find your rest in, in truth. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I, the one thing I, yeah, exactly. It's not so normative or like not in the same sense, but we do have a sense. The one thing I was going to say, I remember the story from R.C. Sproul, um, and he was talking about, he was called to a church that was nearby him. There, 
they were trying to find a pastor and they kept interviewing pastors and they kept finding out that some, I don't know how, what the situation was. Somehow they kept finding out that these pastors keep turning out to be liberals. I don't know how you hire a pastor that happens. But so they called R.C. Sproul to come over and to consult, like, how do we weed these guys out, right? And R.C. said, ask them what their belief is about angels. Whoa, that is a startling way to put it. But he said, there's an anti-supernaturalism that comes with, um, with liberalism as well. So as soon as you start saying, well, this can't be that way because the world doesn't work that way, because science has shown that angels are actually just figments of our imagination. Obviously, you're on the wrong path. So I do think, when we, especially when we're looking at script, stories in scripture about uh, visions and angels and those sorts of things, I think we do have to caution ourselves to not imbibe the spirit of the world to mock that sort of thing, even it's silently in our heart. Like, there's probably some psycho, psychological thing going on in that person. Obviously, we don't want to undermine scripture in that way. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Richard. Um, let's, let's move to the next topic. So the intermediate state, the second coming of Christ is the next one, They're the parousia. Uh, someone want to volunteer to read the excerpt from the confession about that? Amen. Um, so the second coming of Christ, right, this parousia, the coming of Christ. Um, there are many ways that scripture, all throughout scripture, talks about the coming of God. But we know that there's this particular way that when Christ came, he, he came, died, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and we know that he will come again. This is the Christian hope, right? It's not that Jesus had a spiritual resurrection, and that's the story. It's that he was bodily resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and he will return again bodily. That's what we heard in the ecumenical confessions as well. Um, he will ag come again to judge the living and the dead, right? Um, so I have an Acts 1. I have an a reference to Acts 1. Who remembers what's going on in Acts 1? that clearly shows that we're not talking about Jesus in, in, you know, coming back in some sort of non-physical, spiritual way. What's, what, what happened in Acts 1? You remember? What happened to Jesus in Acts 1? He ascended, right? And so here, here's the passage. It says, They were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right? So when he was bodily raised up, he will come again in the same way that you saw him coming. So you remember? Uh, this description about this this coming 
in the clouds, Christ coming in the clouds from First Thessalonians. What's the language there? It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven, not ascend, descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You catch that? There's a lot going on. Like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I lost track here. The Lord will uh, himself descend from heaven with a cry command, sound, a trumpet sound, right? Uh, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive at that time, who are left, will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. To, like a, there's like a greeting party, right? Come up, he comes, and we will, it says we will always be with the Lord, right? And you say, what? Okay, can you fill in the gaps? What, what ha- what's going on? What else? Um, but that is what it says in First Thessalonians. So there's this second coming that we're still looking forward to. That is this bodily descending. The resurrection happens at this time. That's very important to understand. Um, this coming is ushering in the resurrection of the dead. So um, are there any other uh, comments or questions about that particular uh, teaching? This is what the church has always taught. Um, it's, a, it's an issue of orthodoxy. Um, there aren't very many people who would, uh, who would contest that. There is a view that's going around, and it has been going around for a little while, called full or hyper-preterism that teaches that all of this stuff we're talking about today already happened. That was a long time ago. They would say it happened after the, the canon was closed, but it's not in our future. That's a heretical teaching. Right? That's, not, that's not what the church teaches. So um, those things get passed around sometimes um, by, by hyper-focusing on one little comment, right? And they get so fixated on it, they say, well, then if this, then this, then this, and then it must be that, <laughs> whoa, that's not a good path. We're, scripture is our authority, and we need all of Scripture to be informing us. So um, when we look at these things, we see that he will return in the same way that he ascended, It is our hope. It's connected with the resurrection of the dead. And we know these things have not happened. The resurrection that is our hope is not a spiritual resurrection. You could maybe say, in a sense, you know, I was spiritually resurrected when I was born again. Okay, but that's not the Christian hope that is called the resurrection of the dead. And we'll look at that uh, next. Um, but are there any, any other comments about the second coming of Christ, uh, other passages that you are thinking of, um, or any other comments or questions? Okay. So you can see uh, the, the pace at which we are going to move through these. Um, the resurrection of the dead. Can I have a volunteer to read um, the, the two uh, sections from the uh, chapter 32? And actually it's 33, I think. I missed there's a typo there. Those two excerpts from the confession.
the bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just, by his spirit, unto honor, and be made com, uh, conformable to his own glorious body. Thank you. So the resurrection of the dead, right? So I've just asserted that it is not just some kind of spiritual resurrection that already happened, but that it is a, a, a re physical resurrection that our bodies will not be left to corruption, but they will be raised up, right? That there will be a reunion of our souls and bodies, right? Because that's the way we are designed to be. Um, I want to start with this. What's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The fundamental difference that we know about. Yeah, the belief of the resurrection. Which is which? Well, what? what? The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, and the Sadducees did not, and that's why they're sad, you see. Right? So I've, I've heard that. That's how I remember. That, that is really the way I remember. Okay, so... The Sadducees didn't believe in, in these things and the Pharisee in, in this thing and, and spirits as well. They did not believe in spirits. And so uh, there's, there was this constant tension between these religious authorities, the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they were the prominent leaders. There's this constant fundamental difference in understanding. And you, you already remember, uh, you, I'm sure you can think of times that Jesus and Paul were, they knew this. And there were discussions from the Sadducees about it to Jesus. And they used this point of friction between the two of them to show that they're undermining the scriptures, right? So here's an example. Acts 23, this is Paul. It says, this is so great. Pay attention to these tactics. This is, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. That was a good tactic, right? So what does that say about Paul's belief? So if you just take a step back, we're talking about what is the nature of this resurrection. The Sadducees, they don't, this whole spiritual thing, this, you know, we don't believe in that, the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees do believe in that. And what, what does Paul's, what's his stance on the whole thing? He says, I'm a Pharisee, and because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection, that's why you all are trying me, right? So he's stating, I'm with them. They get it, Okay. Jesus did the same thing, different tactic, but had the same discussion with these folks. The same day, this is Matthew 22, the same day Sadducees came to him, to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, these guys, and they asked him a question, and they started making this absurd situation to try to twist Jesus into knots, and he saw right through it. They said, Teach, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third down to the seventh, because that happens all the time. Right? <laughs> After them all, 
the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, which they don't believe in, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, (laughs) because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Present tense. I am the God of them. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So in this intramural debate between the Pharisees and Sadducees, who did Jesus side with? On this particular question, the Pharisees said, have you not read the Bible? <laughs> right? Thank you, yeah. Yeah. Amen. So does that that help us clarify before we are too quick to say, oh, maybe the resurrection is some sort of spiritual resurrection that doesn't have any physical... Are you seeing where Jesus and Paul are placing themselves in the midst of that particular question? Um, So John 11... Martha, um, you know, Lazarus, her brother passed away. Martha said to him, to, to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The resurrection on the last day. This was known. I know that he will. This is what we believe, right? And Acts 24, Paul said, this I, Paul, I, I Paul, confess to you that there will be a resurrection both of the just and and of the unjust. I'll just keep going. Romans 8:23 Paul wrote, "We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." Of our bodies. <laughs> right? It's not saying I can't wait to get rid of this body. That will be so great. We are inwardly groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, that we will be like him. So this is that reference, Philippians 3. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So do you see this, the, the Gnostic tendency, right? This, um, this dualist Gnostic tendency is to say flesh, materiality, the material world is bad. That's all evil. What we really want is we want to be disembodied. We want to just be spirits freed from this yuckiness of earth. That is a Christian heresy, right? It's a heresy of all stripes. It's a Gnostic, it's Gnosticism. Um, and there are actually even um, uh, John dealt with this in his epistles, saying if you deny that he came in the flesh, it's heretical, right? You're an antichrist. <laughs> so it is so essential that 
that the Son became flesh and dwelt among us, that he ascended bodily, he will return bodily, that our resurrection is bodily. Christian theology, this is the Christian hope, that none of this is trash. None of you is trash, but that God made us, uh, the, the word people use now is psychosomatic, a mind, body, soma, body, psychosomatic unity, that we are whole creatures, and God doesn't just uh, redeem a part of us and then throw the rubbish away, but he, that he makes us new. He takes all of us. And this intermediate temporary separation is only temporary. And yes, it's better than living uh, in a, a fallen world and dealing with our, the effects of our sin. But it's not even the end. It's, there is a resurrection of the dead. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I think I mentioned two weeks ago that this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is the bulk of this chapter is focused on this resurrection of the dead. And, you know, we don't have time to read the, the entire chapter, but we will actually revisit it throughout these weeks because there are so many different um, relevant comments to these different topics. Um, but it's important to remember what we just read in Philippians 3, that Christ will transform our lowly body. He's not taking this body and trashing it and then going to get a different one, right? He's transforming this lowly body to be like his body. This is the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. It's not replacement, it's restoration, resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it says, uh, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown, like seeds, you're sowing seeds, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's like the seed planted, you know, you're, you're planted in death, right? You're sown um, in dishonor, you're sown in weakness, it says, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So do you hear that now, the spiritual body? Do you have clarity on what that means? Does spiritual body just mean no body? <laughs> no. Uh, you could, I think Russell has often said, maybe we should capitalize that S to clarify what we're talking about. We're talking about this is not just like an animal, it's even our favorite pet, or you know, just some other created thing, but that we are made new, that we are given the spirit, that we are given new life, and the nature of our resurrection body is founded on that reality, that it is spirit wrought resurrection. That's a great question. Um, I, you know, in preparation for this and other times I've read, what you'll find is, um, like, let's say, I'll just take John Calvin, for example. You start looking up some of these passages, or, like, um, if you look up 1 Corinthians 15, I'm sure he'll say the same thing. He goes, now, hold on. Some impious people will go on and sp speculate about whatever he says, but we need to reserve, we need to be content with what Scripture has revealed. That's typically the answer that's given, and I, I think that's a good answer. Um, I remember a time talking with my brother, who's not a Christian, and we were talking about Christian theology, and we were talking, I don't remember how we got there, we were talking about the nature of election, right? And we were talking about human responsibility. If, 
how is God sovereign and we're responsible? And he was putting it to me sort of, you know, like, hmm, how are you going to answer that one? And I just don't feel the burden to even account to, to answer that question. I don't know. <laughs> Why would you think I know how that works? But what I'm saying to you is that this is what the scripture teaches us, that God is absolutely sovereign, that all evil is uh, ordained by God, and everyone who does that evil is accountable for it, right? And that God is good, right? So the fact that I'm a creature and don't have perfect knowledge doesn't mean then therefore scripture is wrong. It means I'm a creature and finite. And I think that same kind of way of approaching the question is similar. How does all this fit together? Um, are we going to have, what age is my body going to be? Am I going to be a lot more ripped than I am? You know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, they're, they're interesting questions. I, just, I, I think I would just say scripture does not answer them. And so we can be content knowing God is good. It's going to be glorious. The word is glorious. What does glorious look like? I don't know. <laughs> but it's going to be glorious. So that's how I'd answer it. Oh, sorry. And at first they didn't recognize him. Yeah. Right? right? So yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You've never looked better. <laughs> Glorious. Okay. All right, so uh, let's, let's keep moving through these uh, last few um, basic ecumenical things. Um, the final judgment. Uh, I'll read it quick just for, for time here. That God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, Ecclesiastes taught this. This is no New Testament uh, breaking revelation. The scriptures always taught this. Ecclesiastes says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Um, I'll read just a few more to remind us of these things. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans, you see those references. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I mean, this is 
so clear in scripture. It is over and over and over that uh, we will be held accountable, that we will stand before not only this, um, not only the judgment of God, but the judgment seat of Christ, because it says in uh, John 5, the father has given Christ, his, the son, the father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do you remember what that's from? Son of man. That was the one where the, when he said that, they all picked up stones. He just said son of man. That's not, that doesn't mean he's a human. <laughs> they knew he was a human, but he was claiming to be the son of man, and they picked up stones to stone him. What's that a reference to? Daniel? Yeah, Daniel 7, that the Son of Man, uh, one like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given all dominion, all authority. And Jesus said, Son of Man, and they picked up stones because they knew what he was saying, right? So um, all authority is given to Christ. He is the judge. Um, So let's look at these last two in the last few minutes. Um, Eternal punishment and then eternal life. Eternal punishment... Uh, chapter 33, 2, the confession, Then shall the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And all this language, if you're familiar with the confession and you've seen the, um, the citations, the verse references, or the scripture proofs, as it's called, um, What's great about the confession is that it's kind of hijacking all of these passages and putting these scriptural ideas together. And it's not just to take it and rework it, but it's so when we, when we are reading this, we're hearing, oh, I remember that scripture. I know what they're citing, what they're referencing. And it's drawing our attention to this. So Matthew 25, these will go away into eternal punishment. So these are the goats that are separated from the sheep. They will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Um, I'll read from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Intermediate state. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see this judgment um, that all the dead and those who are alive at this coming of Christ, when Christ comes bodily, there is a final judgment. God has been judging all throughout history. He sent judgments to different nations and to his people. Judgment begins at the household of God, we're told. But this is the final judgment. This is the the wrapping up of, of human history and ushering into the eternal state where there are no, there's no turning back. And so this is an, an, um, a fearful thing because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the hope, um, I'll just read um, one passage before we leave here, um, is that 
heaven and earth become one. Right? So um, Revelation 21, um, I'll read, you'll see the passages. That's a very long chapter. Revelation 21 all the way through uh, 22, 5 has this description of uh, Eden glorified, consummated. Let me just read this to close it um, because the eternal state is not, uh, does not lack the resurrection. The eternal state is when our souls and bodies are reunited. We are physical beings on earth restored, earth glorified, Eden fulfilled and consummated. So listen to the description of heaven, right? If earth, it's, it's earth heavenized, maybe it's one way to put it, right? So it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Um, I'll, I'll stop there, but I encourage you to look up the rest of that passage to describe this eternal state, that it's not floating on clouds, right? Right. If we're talking about these guardian angel stories, a, a lot of those stories also have, you know, heaven, the eternal state is you're kind of floating around on clouds and you know, strumming harps, and that's nice. That's not what scripture teaches us at all. It's that uh, grace restores nature, as Herman Bobbing said, that God, when he, um, God in Christ, uh, uh, reunited, reconciled all things in heaven and earth to himself. And that's what this work is going to be. So the Christian hope is not a, a um, uh, it is a physical hope. It's a, it's a hope for our bodies just as much as it is for our souls. And so the, the resurrection of Christ, the um, restoration that Christ brings is complete and it lacks nothing. Uh, any other any comment or question before we Head out. Yes. Uh, well, there's. Um, I would say it this way. I think Christian burial is fitting, right? So uh, burying in a casket is fitting because it's saying, "I know I will come back," right? So there's. Um, it's a kind of a Buddhist mentality to cremate a body and spread the ashes to return to the earth, but Christians bury because the body is going to rise up is it a sin to be cremated i don't think so but when when uh, when we talk about a christian burial we're talking about someone um a child of god who's laid down saying i'll be right back right and so that's why the church usually does that and um cremation comes from other worldviews um, again i'm not saying it's sinful i'm just saying god is able to do that of course god is able to pull those pieces and of course he's able to but in terms of why different burial practices have happened, they've come from particular worldviews. So, um, but we're way over time now. Sai's gonna pray.
Amen.